Hey, uh, good morning, Hillside. Welcome. I am so glad you're with us this morning or whenever you happen to be watching online. I want to start with a weird question. How is your heart? Uh, Wednesday, uh, this last Wednesday was heart day for me. In the early afternoon, I visited my cardiologist. I have a misshaped heart valve that they want to keep an eye on, so I go for my annual checkup. Uh, and the doctor this week put me through the paces. He looked at my echocardiogram, my blood pressure. He made me do a stress test. And at the end, he said, your heart's still ticking. Yay, all good. <laughs> later that afternoon, same, same afternoon, a couple hours later, I actually did an online call with my spiritual director. And there in that video call, he asked me questions like, Derwin, how is your heart? What's going on in your heart? And by the end of that hour together, Jesus had actually done some pretty cool things in me. It was, it, like I said, Wednesday was heart day for me. Turns out our hearts matter. Uh, Jesus, again in, and again uh, in his teaching, would, would point us back to the inner life, the, 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 the heart of the matter. He often would be concerned with the state of people's hearts. And Jesus... He draws a, a direct line from the condition of people's hearts to their words, to what they speak. In Matthew 12, 34, he said, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. In other words, you want to know what's going on in someone's heart, listen to what they say. So our words matter, and in our text today, we're going to look at what Jesus says about making promises or taking oaths and uh, about speaking truthful words. And uh, we're going to look at that, what he meant by that, and then we'll spend the rest of our time asking, what does this mean for us today? We're going to look at Matthew uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 33 to 37. You can turn there if you have a Bible. Uh, and I'd encourage you, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Again, beginning at verse 33. Again, you have heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no, Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Why don't we pray? God, uh, this is sacred space, this time where we worship you and we gather to hear from you. And I pray, Jesus, you would speak to our hearts today and uh, reform them and change them and help line them up with your life and your kingdom. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And if you're standing, you can have a seat. Uh, the text begins with, Again, you've heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Now, this isn't actually a quote from the Old Testament, but it kind of sums up teaching on oaths from the Old Testament of making promises. In those days, uh, vows and oaths, uh, promises were kind of a, a common thing. You saw it in marriage vows. You saw it in worship, in the kind of promises that people made to God. You saw it in, in regular everyday affairs, uh, household promises, agreements uh, in business. In many ways, 
we still make and, and kind of say those kind of promises today. Now, there are many Old Testament instructions, especially in the first five books of the Bible, on the importance of, of making oaths or keeping oaths, on keeping the vows you've made. For example, Numbers 30 says, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything that he said. A person was generally not required to make an oath or, or a pledge or a promise, but if they did, they had to keep it. Uh, Deuteronomy 23 says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips should utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. So here we're told that oath-taking was not to be taken lightly. God expected if you made an oath, you kept your oath. We see this summed up in the third and ninth of the Ten Commandments. You remember what they were? The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the ninth commandment was, you shall not bear false witness. In other words, thou shall not lie. You know, we don't say this very much anymore, but I recently entered into an agreement with somebody and they looked me in the eye and said with conviction, you've got my word on this, right? Our, our words matter and God expects that we're to be people of our word. Now Jesus, uh, in his teaching here, seems to throw a whole wrench into this Old Testament teaching on oaths when he goes on to say in verse 34, but I tell you, don't swear an oath at all. Well, which is it? God tells us to make promises. Jesus says, don't. Well, this is not quite the point that Jesus was making. For one thing, Matthew 26 tells us that Jesus himself was under oath when he was on trial before the high priest. And it seems that early Christians didn't read Jesus' teaching as prohibiting all oaths. The apostle Paul took vows in his ministry. In Acts 18.18, it describes him as, as shaving his head in fulfillment of a vow, like maybe I did, but I didn't. I shaved it because I was going bald, but whatever. In Revelation 10, John records his vision of an angel who swore an oath. So what was Jesus getting at when he spoke against oaths? Well, in the, the first century, apparently what was happening, to, to keep people from breaking the rules regarding vows and promises, religious leaders invented this system by which they could determine whether a vow had to be kept or not. They decided there were vows you had to keep and there were vows you didn't have to keep. Other ancient literature shows that many rabbis didn't consider it a sin to break a vow unless that vow was explicitly made in God's name. We kind of get this, right? I mean, we say things we don't really mean. I mean, kids do this in school. You know, friends might say something and you say, you're joking, right? Or you may say, might say something to a, a friend. Do you remember this? Pinky swear? Anybody? What does pinky swear mean? I suspect most children don't know. It means you really, you really mean it. But you know where it came from? A country where if you didn't keep your promise, they would cut off your pinky finger. Really nice, right? I wouldn't throw that around so lightly from here on in, by the way. Another one we used to say when I was a kid was, 
cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, right? Like, ouch, things we said as kids. <laughs> but those are promises you really meant. But there were times you didn't really mean it, and what would you do? You crossed your fingers behind your back, right? <laughs> when it came to those words that you said with your fingers crossed, you kind of had an out. Well, this is what was going on. The Jews had found a way to take an oath and leave out the name of God, thus keeping the commandments of the Old Testament, but, but still using the oath to kind of get their point across, to achieve what they wanted. It was actually kind of a manipulative thing. So what did this crossing of their fingers look like? Jesus' words gives us some clues. He says, don't swear by heaven, for it's God's throne or by the earth for it's its footstool, or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head, for you can't make even one hair white or black. I guess they didn't have hair coloring back then. So, so they were swearing by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem. They'd even swear by their own head, thinking that by doing so, that gave them kind of a get-out-of-oaths-free card, because they weren't swearing by God. And Jesus says, well, you don't know God. God is omnipresent, which is a fancy word for saying he is everywhere. Heaven and earth, they're the same for God. The earth is his footstool. Jerusalem is his city. In other words, there, there isn't anything or, or any place you can use as an oath that puts God kind of out of your picture. Even your head, you can't even change the color of, of your hair, Jesus says. That is God's domain too. And Jesus, his point really is this, is that, folks, our lives can't be divided into compartments, those where God is involved and those where God is not. There's not one standard for how we speak and act in church and then another standard for how we speak at work and act at work and in our homes. God wants there to be this integrity in our lives. And we can't fool God. Turns out, like, all Promises are sacred. Why? Because they're all made in the presence of God. So Jesus doesn't abolish the law. What Jesus does is go back to the original intent and purpose behind the law. That, that purpose was to ensure truthfulness, truthful speech. Since the whole system of oath-baking had, had, had become corrupt and was being used to avoid telling the truth, he forbids all oaths. He says, don't swear at all, but, but as he says in verse 37, he says, let your, your word be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Jesus calls us to practice simple honesty. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's saying, just tell the truth, be who you are, say what you mean. And it turns out, honest people will not have to resort to saying oaths. Clement of Alexandria. I, I like the name Clement, by the way. I'm wondering why that has not caught on again in the 21st century. He was a church leader in the second and third century, and ins he insisted that Christians lead such a life and demonstrate such character that no one would ever dream of asking an oath from them. He said this, he said, the ideal society is one in which no person's word will ever need an oath to guarantee its truth, and no person's promise will ever need an oath to guarantee it's fulfilling. Jesus tells his disciples simply to speak the truth on every occasion. 
Let your yes be yes, our no be no. To add anything else is unnecessary. Well, this all said, just how big a deal is this in our culture? How prevalent is lying in our lives and in our culture? I was talking about this with a friend a while back. He was remarking how I'd often, in our conversations, I'd, use, I'd start a, a sentence with honestly. I, I'd say, honestly, I, I was going to go to the store. Honestly. Like, and he's like, why do you have to say that? Are you a dishonest person most of the time? And you're only honest when you say honestly? And this led to this conversation at the coffee shop where one of my, around lying and truthfulness, and, and one of my friends who likes to pontificate, he piped in with, lying is a way of life. You can't get through life without lying. And I think a lot of people would agree with my friend. There's all kinds of lying, right? There's sort of straightforward dishonesty and, and lies. We all know about that. But there's also a lot of subtler forms of deception. Polite lying. Like when your partner asks, have I gained weight? What do you say there? Uh, lies of convenience. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm in quarantine. I, I can't attend your Tupperware party. You know, or, or we can use the pandemic to just excuse us from just about anything, can't we? <laughs> lies of spin. Uh, think fake news. Or, or how advertisers and sometimes politicians sometimes twist the truth or spin, you know, bad news into good news. How about lies of exaggeration? We do this sometimes when we tell stories, right? You know, the, the, the fish was this big. Or, or I only had a very small piece of cake. <laughs> or as I've told you a million times. Here's the thing. Studies have shown that most of us will lie at the drop of a hat. We've gotten to the place where we don't even expect kind of the plain truth anymore. Lewis Smead's author and writer says, in our society, the plain truth often puts one at a distinct disadvantage. So why does this matter, like that we lie? Well, we get a clue from the last line of the passage where Jesus says something pretty strong here. All you need to say, he says, is simply a yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. The, the Greek word for evil one here could be translated simply as evil. It's a right result of, of sinful human nature and the wickedness in the world. But that world, word can also be translated as evil personified. It, it comes from the evil one, the, the devil himself, whom Jesus calls the father of lies. Our, our lying matters so much because of kind of the impact it has. It, there's really three things that happens when we lie. We, we hurt other people. We dishonor God. And we hurt ourselves. Lying hurts others. We, we, we kind of know this, right? It hurts relationships. Most of us have been hurt, and, and maybe hurt seriously, by one or more lies in our lives. And it can feel like a betrayal. And, and lying can have long-term consequences. It breaks trust. You know, growing up, our, our two sons knew that uh, one thing that they really could get in trouble for was for lying, right? They knew that we, if we caught them in a lie, they were in trouble. They were in trouble because it affected whether we could trust them or not. And in terms of hurting others, I've occasionally 
kind of been given a front row seat to a marriage or to a friendship that was permanently hurt by lies that were told. So when we lie, we hurt other people and we damage relationships and we, we hurt others and we dishonor God who, if you read scriptures, he's intensely relational. He cares so much about righteousness, which can also be translated as right relatedness. And he's passionately interested in truth and integrity and justice. And third, when we lie, we, we hurt ourselves. A friend of mine talked about this, how, how the philosopher Plato, in answer to a question, made the point that, that it's never in one's advantage to lie or to steal. Because when you lie or you steal, you damage your own soul. Our, our actions and, and what we say aren't something that are, aren't disconnected from us. What we say, what we do are all connected to who we are and to the people that we're becoming, that, that God is shaping us to be. Our actions, our words are the stuff out of which our character is formed. Some of you would have heard Stephen Covey's words once where he said, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. We've, we've talked about this a lot before, but the penalty for sin in our lives is not usually instant judgment, right? It's not like uh, fire falls from heaven. The penalty for sin is usually a greater appetite and attachment to sin, to, to where we've gone astray. It becomes something that, that we think we do, but eventually it, it makes us slaves to it, <laughs> The opposite true is, by the way, that the opposite, that the reward for righteousness is not usually kind of a life that's problem-free. The reward for righteousness is usually a greater passion for, for righteousness and for truth. You see, sin and, and righteousness have kind of a spiraling effect. The punishment for sin and the, right, the reward for righteousness are bound up in, in sin and righteousness itself. So when you lie you are more likely to kind of walk down a path that will include more and more deception. And it impacts who you are and who you're becoming. And you, you, here's the thing, you don't just fool others. Eventually you end up kind of fooling yourself. So when we're tempted to lie, we need to think and we need to kind of scroll up and, and look down on our lives and, and say, by doing this, by saying this, is this in line with the kind of story that I want to write with my life? You know, many of us, we're not in situations where we're pressured to lie because of some great cause, some great justice like hiding Jews from the Nazis. Most of us are tempted to lie because we just simply want to avoid some kind of like social discomfort. You examine it, it's often some trivial thing, right? Or because it's going to serve our self-interest. So, so before we lie, we need to ask ourselves, is this about me? Is this about the character I want to develop for the story or the plot line of my life. So God says, don't lie because it damages your, your character, it hurts your neighbor, and it dishonors God. The Apostle Paul says this in first, first, uh, chapter 4 of Ephesians, put off falsehood and speak the truth to one another because you are all members of one body. Now this is all fine and good, but it leads to the question, how do you become and grow into a person who is more likely to be a truth teller, right? Who's more likely to, to put off falsehood 
and to be able to answer with a clear yes and a clear no. How, how do you become that kind of person? Well, as Daryl Johnson once put so well, he says, the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount can never be separated from the preacher on the Mount. It can be, never be separated from Jesus. We'll tend to become more truthful as we actually grow in our relationship with, with Jesus. We'll tend to become truth-tellers as we grow deeper with God. And as, as you go deeper, you'll find his, his holiness and his purity and his integrity and his generosity, his, his truth will be reflected in both your heart and your character. The, the, the life of faith is, part of it is, is going on a heart-healthy diet with Jesus, right? He begins to transform our hearts and, and restore them and make them whole. But you see, our relationship with God and with truth-telling are, are closely related. Think about it. Why do people lie? Why do we lie? Why are we tempted to lie? What's going on inside of us? Fear, for sure. Kind of getting ourselves out of trouble, uh, out of a sticky situation. I, I think Abraham, when I think of this, he's, he was kind of known for some of the lies he told. Not once, but, but twice, Abraham goes down to Egypt during famines to seek refuge, and he felt threatened, and he thought his beautiful wife, Sarah, was going to get him killed and so his exit strategy was to lie. She's not my wife, she's my sister. You know, I, I think of the, the lies we, we told as kids to our parents. You know, uh, a vo vase gets broken or a jar gets broken, and it's like, the dog broke it. I didn't do it, the dog did it, right? To get yourself out of that, that difficult situation, a, a sticky situation, to avoid trouble. Another right reason why many of us lie is because of an impression management. Managing how people think of us, right? Dallas Willard argued that, that many of us, for most of us, our lives are defined by seeking the approval of people. Doesn't that kind of ring true? Doesn't that ring true for you? I think it does for me. We don't want to look bad, and so what do we do? We lie, or, or maybe we tell half-truths. Think of uh, first dates or resumes as an example, right? But you know what happens when you enter more deeply into a relationship with God? You become a less fearful person, a, a person who's less anxious about what people will think of you. You become a more secure person. You, you grow in, in that sense of God's care for you and his affection towards you his fierce commitment to you. And, and you know what? You'll begin to grow in your appreciation for God's capacity to get you out of trouble, to be your savior, to be your exit strategy. As you grow closer to God, your, your faith in his power means you'll be more likely to call on God and, and to save you and to look after you as opposed to lying to get yourself out of trouble. You know, when I think of this, I think of you know, the, the contrast between two famous sayings about the truth that will have to weigh. One of this, them is from my favorite film moments ever in A Few Good Men, you know? This, this intense Tom, Tom Cruise moment where he's got Jack Nicholson on the stand and he says, I want the truth. And, and Jack says, you can't handle the truth. Um, then I think of the words of Jesus to compare with that. You shall know the truth 
and the truth shall set you free. Ultimately, we have to decide, are we going to believe Jesus, or are we going to believe Jack? Here's the thing. There's a freedom that comes in a, with a relationship with God, frees you to not have to lie. Thomas Merton said this. He says, true freedom comes from serving God alone. When you serve God alone, you're freed from the need to be approved by people all the time. When you serve God alone, you're, you're freed from the expectations of those around you. But if your life is not built on God, if it's built on the approval of people, you won't find it easy to take the risk to be truthful because it's way too dangerous. Because if a person rejects you when you tell the truth, what else do you have? But if you build your life on God and your relationship with God, you'll gradually grow in your ability to, to tell people the truth and to be a person who keeps your word. To wrap things up, I, I came across this week a, a passage in Hebrews 6. It's all about oaths. And this time, it's about God who takes an oath. And we can swear by God, but who does God swear by? Turns out he swears by himself. Listen to this. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable, but listen to this, because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Pure gold, right? God is an oath maker, and he makes an oath to those of us who've entered into his family through Jesus. And, and, and one thing is really clear from his word. It is impossible for God to be untruthful. It's impossible for God to lie. We might lie, we might break faith, we might even break our oaths, but God won't. God is not an oath breaker. And as his followers, he makes this fierce commitment to us. He makes this oath, this, this vow to us, and that means he'll never change his mind about us. Isn't that good? He will never leave us. He'll never break faith with us. He'll, he'll hold on to us through whatever we're going through, through thick and through thin, through mountaintops and through valleys. So we can have great confidence and, and great hope in him. May that hope be a strong and trustworthy anchor for our hearts and for our souls and ultimately free us to become people of the truth. Angel's going to now lead us in a time of prayer and response.